Welcome to another edition of the Varsity Podcast. Justin Barney, Cole Pepper. We're here to talk some high school sports. And uh, Cole, busy on the administrative front, right, uh, so to speak. So we've got a lot of uh, ground to cover today in the Varsity Podcast. And big news this week coming out of uh, Gainesville was the potential for a new high school football regular season format and a new potential for a change in the state championship format. What were your thoughts on on everything that we'll dive into uh, kind of the details on this? I had three thoughts. First was I gave you a flashback to sort of the uh, middle of the uh, first year of, of COVID and the pandemic where felt like we spent way too much time covering, you know, Zoom calls on board meetings to hear people talk about what should or should not happen in uh, in high school football and, and everything else. Uh, that was a sometimes painful story to follow very, just yes, with the, all the different personalities and, and uh, different motivations. Number two, my thought was, what what was starting this? What was the impetus for this change? And number three, do we really need a change? And if so, is this the right way to, to make that adjustment? So we can kind of go through those steps if you want here on this conversation. Uh, you and I have been talking about it in the office uh, since this broke uh, yesterday, that there was an 8-7 vote in favor by the athletic director's committee, uh, John Scromolo of Clay County, the heads that committee. Um, so we started looking at the history of state championships in football, um, and I recall a, a conversation I had with Corky Rogers when I was doing the games for Bulls one year before uh, – Bowles played either Coco or Booker T, I can't remember which, uh, in a state title game. And he said that um, if you look, he, he says it's going to be hard. It's going to be becoming harder and harder for teams in North Florida to win state titles because of the way things are, have been done in South Florida. Now, again, this was, uh, you know, four, five, six years ago maybe now. And yeah, Bowles uh, has not won a state title since 2011. And they haven't since 2011. Obviously, Trinity Christian has. Yeah. Reigns has. Mandarin has. So, it's not you know, necessarily prophetic in any sense. But I think part of the reason why he was talking about that was the change in what had happened in terms of being able to transfer kids in and open enrollment and that sort of thing and the difference that, that makes because of how it's being applied in different districts around the area. That being said, my first instinct on this was, is this somebody complaining because they can't beat Trinity Christian? Uh, that, that was sort of what it felt like at first, or, or a Trinity Christian type of school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Trinity's won back-to-back state titles. They've won nine titles under Verlin Dormany. And you start thinking, well, maybe this is a part of the impetus for this. But you think it's a sort of a different reason in general why a lot of coaches and some athletic directors think, uh, think they need to make a change. Yeah, and, and having talked to kind of a, a sampling of coaches, athletic directors in our coverage area, um, they seem to be on board with the change. Um, you know, I think there's a school of thought where some of the smaller classification Schools want to get districts back open. Um, you know, in, in classes 1A to 4A, they abolished district play back in 2017 uh, in favor of um, RPI points, rankings points, and uh, or, or format of that where you use those qualification criteria and not automatically qualify like district champions do in 5A through 8A. When they did away with that, I think there was a little bit of an outcry like, hey, how are we going to schedule these games? Where are we going to get these opponents? So I think the the consensus for one portion of that is overwhelming from those smaller school coaches. We want to play district games. That gives us locked-in opponents. The flip side and is – And that's only half of this whole conversation, by the way. And, and I think you'd have most coaches and probably most fans and media probably say, yeah, that's a good idea to keep – districts as part of this thing. yeah so that's that's you know almost lost in this whole thing is you know districts possibly coming back 
for those smaller schools, and I think that is overwhelmingly positive um, to get you those games. The biggest piece of the enchilada here is we're talking about separating the eight largest metro areas in the state of Florida, Duval County being one of those, and putting them in a four-classification metro division or or league, I guess you would call it, and then taking the other 59 counties in the state of Florida and putting them in a suburban five-classification window. So you're talking about two different leagues, metro and suburban. Uh, Metro would be the eight largest districts in four counties in Florida, Suburban would be the 59 other counties in Florida that don't fall into that. And let's define that for some of the schools in our area. So in Duval County, you are in one of the eight largest counties. So if you're a Gateway County school, whether you are a, um, you know, a, a huge 8A school like Mandarin or whether you're a smaller school uh, like Trinity or like, uh, it was not Gateway County, but obviously the Gateway uh, Conference, but obviously in Duval County. Some of these others who, who may be, you know, in the smaller classifications, you're still in the metro division. Correct. So to yeah. speak. So you're you're and that expands to the Miami Dades, the Browards and stuff, the power private school powers down there, those guys would be lumped into that metro area, even though you're not technically a public school from that metro area. So you say, all right, metro area, but the way they're right now categorizing this is by county. So that's Duval County. So if you're in St. John's County and you're Bartram Trail or Creekside, uh, or you're in, uh, you know, Clay County. You, you, if you're Oak Leaf, but you're and you're right up against the border, you're still in the suburbs according to this plan, and so you become a suburban team. I think there's more conversation to be had about some of these things, and it's not just about who you play within the course of, uh, you know, district play or something. But uh, let's let's acknowledge that if you're a um, uh, an 8A team, right now there are two 8A teams in Duval County, Mandarin and Sandalwood. Am I leaving anybody out? No, that's right? it. Those that's are the it. only two. They they're in, they're in the, have been in the same district with Creekside and Bartram and uh, Oakleaf Oak and Ponte Vedra. So, th- you know, you've got, all, you've got all these area schools where you, it's an easy bus ride. Well, now all of a sudden, if you're playing in a district and you're the, the closest uh, county to you, is Orange County in Orlando. Well, now you've got to make those, those are now your district. So now all of a sudden for these larger schools that may not have as many teams to compete with uh, within the same county, now you've got to travel. Uh, to me, part of this motivation, it, it seems that it comes down to some, uh, uh, basically a handful of schools that have dominated over the last, say, 10 years. Um, I think you can go back to maybe the late 2000s, but certainly when you start talking about what happened you know, in the middle of the, of the 2010s, you, to see this, this grouping of schools that have won so many of the titles. And you and I went back. We left out the 1A because that is already a rural classification, um, just the 1A. And then you're going to have these eight other classifications that include the, uh, the metro and the suburban. And, you know, it's a huge percentage of, of those championships are won by teams from metro areas, from these eight major counties, but also – you have a ton of these basically won by like 10 different schools that mm-hmm. have won all these titles. Well, is that about the population center or is that about those programs and those coaches? Uh, you know, it's you've got to balance that in this whole equation as well. I do think it's um, when we're talking about those eight areas, uh, those are Broward, Duval, Hillsboro, Miami-Dade, Orange, Palm Beach, Pinellas, and Seminole County. So those are the eight largest um, metro areas in this um, in this proposal. 
Um, and I do think it's a little bit of, um, I would say jealousy, but I would think uh, competitive balance or, um, you know, having talked to a couple coaches on the record about this, you know, they held no words. It said this, it, we're not, it's not apples to apples. You know, a team from uh, our area is not going to be able to compete with the Miami Centrals and stuff of the world. Just not going to be able to. You're drawing from a bigger talent pool um, and with open enrollment uh, and the barriers coming down between counties, kids can go anywhere. Um, it's just not a fair comparison. And you're not going to win a state championship every year if you're a high school team in this area. That's well known. Well, but and, I, and I'll acknowledge that. I guess my, my biggest gripe with this system is that now all of a sudden Bartram Trail and Creekside are treated differently than Mandarin, and you can bike between those three schools very easily. It's not that far apart. I mean, I, there's no difference in the population center that, that those schools can access when you start talking about open enrollments and that sort of thing if you do it the right way and you, you go through the right uh, – uh, channels and administratively, you can get somebody playing at Bartram Trail who lives in, you know, the Mandarin district. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a that's a that's a good point you bring up. But I do think having talked to um, an athletic director on that advisory committee and and also a couple coaches who are uh, in the know on this, that is a possibility for those fringe schools. You know, school if you're if you're in a subur- suburban area like an Oakley, for you identify more with that metro area. You're gonna possibly in when details come out of this are going to be able to have an opportunity to um, say petition to move into that uh, metro area so I do think if if that's a caveat where you can uh, still have a district where it's I mean I I thought 8a and district 18a which we had the last couple years has been perfect for our area teams where you're not having to go down uh, to Flagler County or into Seminole and play these district games I think having that that Oakleaf, Sandalwood, Mandarin, uh, Bartram Trail, Creekside District is just fantastic for those bigger schools in our area. So I do think those fringe schools, I mean, Oakleaf is, I mean, a mile or so from Duval County. Uh, would Oakleaf had that potential to petition to possibly play in that metro area? See, I think it's a good question. I'm looking the other question. way at it, though, Justin. It's not, it's not the, the suburban schools that are going to be hurt by this more. It's going to be it's, the it's, metro It's schools. going to be the metro so schools. So the question is, can Mandarin – decide can sandalwood decide hey we want to be lumped in with creekside and oakleaf and Pontevedra and and you know or are they locked in because it's a metro that's it and so um and i'm just thinking about this from a, a logistics standpoint where i know that some schools trinity and bowls certainly among them have a hard time scheduling teams in the area that because teams don't want to get whipped uh, by you know traditional powers so uh, those teams have to travel quite a bit in order to find a lot of games, particularly got even worse when it went out when the districts went away. They didn't mm-hmm. have some district teams to face. Now, I will also say that when Bowles was in a district with Reigns, those were some great district games. Great games. They were also in a district with Jackson and West Nassau and, and Fernandina Beach. Yeah. Those were not great games. West Nassau usually gave them a pretty good half, um, and I called a lot of those games, but it wasn't very competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, listen – um, I don't know that you that you have to find balance in in outcome as part of the the judgment of this thing because in every listen if that was the case the NFL is a league of parity the Jaguars have still had the number one pick the last two years right so I I do think it's more of a competitive balance when you're talking about getting to that state level I don't think this is going to make a, a huge bit of difference in the regular season especially if uh, what comes to pass in 1A through 4A, you get back to districts. I think that that 
That's probably the best for everything. We talked at the top of the podcast. That was probably an, uh, one of the proposals in this plan that would uh, would be heavily um, encouraged by coaches, athletic directors around the state. So I don't think it's going to mess up the regular season too much, um, especially if you have the ability to, to get an Oakley for somebody like that on one of those suburban outlier counties coming to the metro, I don't think you're going to have that ability if you're a Mandarin or a Range or somebody to say, hey, we want to play in suburban. Um, I do think that there's going to be conversation uh, for some of those smaller schools on that border or maybe in like in an Oak Leaf situation right there by Duval County, you could come over and, and have that instead of having to maybe play down in that Orlando district or, or uh, Volusia County district or whatever the case may be there. So I do think there's some good things and bad things, but I think the, the parity on the state championship level um, – Something needs to be done on these classifications. You look at the, the state championships, as we did earlier, just by decade, how much that has gone up. Um, you know, 41% of Metro championships in the 1990s uh, were won. So, I mean, you're talking, what, 59% were won by uh, suburban schools. So, and you've yeah, seen that almost, yeah, yeah you've, you've seen that jump to almost, what, 80%. I, I know we're only two years into the 2020s, but 80% of teams from Metro areas in the 2020 and 21. 14 of 16 championships have been won by those metro schools. So I think the coaches um, who coach at those suburban schools are wanting um, a little bit more balance when it comes to things. It's, you know, open enrollment has taken down those barriers, and I think the schools want to have that uh, somewhat addressed. I, I, I understand the need to balance open enrollment because it has become somewhat of high school free agency in some regard. But what we're seeing, we saw it first in the NFL, we saw it first in baseball, but you saw it first in as football in the NFL when the free agency came into play in the, in the 1980s. Then you have seen it with the transfer portal in college football, and you've seen it in high school football with, uh, with the open enrollment and, and, and the ability for students to transfer. They're not supposed to transfer just because of sports, but, you know. It happens. It happens. It, we know it does. Worst kept secret out there. Yeah, and it, the magnet program kind of allowed for people to say, well, yeah, well, I'm going here. You know, Billy Butler going to Wolfson because of the business uh, you know, program. Um, and his business was hitting a baseball. That's right. So he, and, <laughs> and business was good. Um, so, th- th- and certainly the private schools, you can, you, you can start a long list of, of uh, kids who mm-hmm. didn't live close to a private school who were going there. That, that's happened for a long, long time. My concern here is that, that it's a, it is a knee-jerk reaction uh, to a problem. At least the, the solution is a knee-jerk solution to a problem that does need to be addressed. I think there are a lot of unintended consequences that haven't necessarily been thought through. Maybe those are uh, what those seven who voted against it in the athletic directors committee are thinking about right now. But I, this is going to be a very interesting thing to hear the debate about uh, between now and it was it February twenty second, twenty seventh, and twenty eighth is when it yeah. uh, when we hear that. And, um, we talked to uh, St. Augustine High School football coach Brian Braddock earlier today, and uh, these were his thoughts on the suburban metro split. Take a listen. I think at the end of the day. Uh, like I said earlier, you just want to know that you're, you're apples to apples. Um, you know, when you're drawing kids for a, for a 50-person football team from uh, a metro area of, you know, 300,000 kids, it's just very different than when you're in an area where there's 10,000 kids. So I think it's a, it's a good thing. I think if it goes too far, I think if it's too big of a change, then I think they'll adjust. But I, I think it's time for something drastic. And, um, you know, I get it. There's some schools that don't like it, of course. Um, but I, I don't think it's going to really take anything away from anybody. Um, I just think it'll maybe open up, again, a little bit more equitability. So hearing that, Cole, you know, Brian has has obviously spoken up about uh, the need for change and, and how St. Augustine, you know, a team in St. Augustine's situation is just not 
um, uh, really stocked to play those Miami teams. It just gets to a point in the postseason where you know you're not going to be able to um, handle those heavyweights who are drawing from a different talent pool. Is this, you know, is this like, in a sense, uh, Power Five football against Group of Five? A little bit. I mean, obviously, you're talking about a different situation from a money standpoint because uh, the college football money is, of course, is obscene at this point. Um, and the high school football is not not really a money thing. It's just the opposite right now. There's there's not enough of it to go around. Uh, but um, I would also say that if this is strictly about the championship game, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that this is the right thing to be worried about, to, to, to be adding expenses to programs. And, you know, Brian runs a very good program at St. Augustine, a program that, that won a championship when he was an assistant uh, under Joey Wiles. You know, he, he's, he's seen what a championship program uh, can do at that school. Um, can St. Augustine win a championship now where they are? Uh, maybe. Uh, it, is it more difficult than it was 10 or 15 years ago? Without a doubt. Uh, and I think that's the case for a lot of uh, uh, public high schools, particularly in areas that aren't growing quite as fast or that are adding a lot of schools in the area. And when you talk about the new Beachside High School that's up there, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what, what's going to happen in St. John's County, how they draw away from Nice or Creekside or Bartram or, or whomever, um, and how that's going to impact what happens. Uh, listen, these things ebb and flow with population and developments and where they draw the district lines and everything else. And it's not just about football. True. But this particular rule is about football. Absolutely. And, uh, and I'm going to be interested to see how it all plays it's, out. You know, things are cyclical in, in the world of sports and professional college, down to high school and Little League. I think, though, when they're looking at that, that segment of data from the 90s, the 2000s, the 10s, the 20s, it's trending so much upward in um, in in the fact of these big metro areas continue to nominate, you know, I know Brian used the term all-star teams and, and kids are smart. Parents are smart. They go where that success is and they go and they, they play on these all-star teams and stuff. And I think um, it's, it's more in those metro areas that you see those quote unquote all-star teams. So I think this is um, this, this effort I think is done with a, uh, with an eye on that state law in 2016 um, which became law in 2017, that took away the barriers for open enrollment, uh, created, you know, in a sense, less punishment. The FHA just doesn't have the uh, the authority, the manpower to investigate all these things. And um, I think this is a, you know, somewhat of a solution to get around maybe those state laws or some of that. Um, we're, we're beyond the, uh, the public-private school split. I know that's been a popular um, point of uh, argument going back to about the 70s, uh, how public and private schools should play for separate state championships. So I think this is, in a way, um, some small way to, to somewhat address the transfers, the uh, open enrollment and everything from those metro area schools that tend to benefit the most from that. Yeah, I, I just the other thing I think about is what is the experience like for the kids? Because ultimately that's what high school sports is about for, you know, the predominance of, of kids who play sports. It's not about getting a scholarship somewhere else, a few will, but it's about the experience they have, what the lessons they learn, the friendships and the bonds that they grow in those years. Is this going to change that at all? I don't think so. Um, it, does it change if somebody wins a championship? Possibly. But I don't think it changes the experience for these kids, especially when you're talking about right now. Basically, it's North Florida on one side of the bracket, South Florida on the other side of the bracket. So you're going to more or less be contending with the same level of teams 
um, even if it's not from the same you know geography. Yeah, another big change this week that was uh, kind of in that package as well is the uh, doing away with the RPI. Um, I know a team like a St. Augustine or a Clay this year really got kind of pinched by that RPI um, and. If you're not familiar with it, it's a ratings percentage index similar to uh, in college basketball. Um, you have that. You base that on your opponent's winning percentage and, and how you did that. But how teams were able to scheme that system, I think we saw a little bit of that this year when teams would – um, you know, would rather sit on maybe an eight and one record and not reschedule uh, an opponent for possibly cancel games. So I think the RPI in in theory was a good idea. Um, after tinkering with that several times, um, they came up with the RPI, uh, but that is now going to be out the window in favor of these max reps, uh, max preps rankings, which are used in the other team sports, volleyball, baseball, to determine um, those playoff seeds outside of those district champs. So uh, a team like St. Augustine, a team like Clay. You're going six and four, seven and three against a good schedule. Um, you know, it, it gets squeezed out of the playoffs by a team that may go seven and three or eight and two uh, with a bad schedule. So I think teams learned a little bit of how to game that. What are your thoughts on that one? Well, I think anytime you have subjectivity uh, coming into play with uh, determining postseason teams, you're going to have people who are going to feel like they got the raw end of the stick. In the NFL, there's no subjectivity. It's all about the record and the tiebreakers, mm-hmm. and you know what those things are going in. you got to play the games, and it's all about the results of the games on the field. When you start talking about having RPI and there's math involved and you know uh, a chance for um, somebody else uh, to you know, determine based on particularly you know, with COVID uh, cancellations and so forth, that there, you know, some of those decisions are made when there's an opportunity to play or not play uh, based on COVID, then they are starting to look at that as a, as a part of the, of the permutation. I think that's a bad thing. Um, I don't. I don't think anybody ever uh, had a case, had a really strong case, that in the old system of you know win your district or be the runner-up and you get in. There, there were always you know some third-place teams that thought they should have been uh, in with or instead of the second-place team. I get that, but in terms of those who earned their way in, it was simple. It was really easy. <laughs> really you easy. knew what you had to do. It was all laid out in front of you, and I, and so it sort of felt like. Um, you know, again, we had one year where you had, you know, a no-win team getting in because of the, of the, of the system. Um, I, I think there's a little bit of an of a overcorrection uh, on this. When it swerves to the left, doesn't mean you have to jerk the wheel to the right all the way. It's a little nudge, a little tap sometimes can, can correct the problem. And sometimes there's just one outlier. If it happens one year and it never, you know, you can make sure it never happens again by putting a simple... Uh, you know, guideline in like three, you know, minimum three wins or something like mm-hmm. that. We talked about that at the time. Um, I, listen, I applaud the fact that you have the FHSAA and the board and all the subcommittees looking to uh, try to improve the process as we go. Um, most of the time, a lot of these corrections wind up having to be dialed back a little bit a couple of years down the line. Yeah, and I think that's what we've seen. I mean, the RPI is, has been in place since 2019, and we're already – uh, changing it again, I think for the third time, uh, and getting away from it, and I think the the vote there was overwhelming to get rid of the RPI, just from what we saw this past year with uh, deserving teams, and it goes beyond just uh, local teams uh, getting squeezed out of the playoffs for for teams that you know built a, a cream puff schedule and and wanted to go nine and one, ten and zero um, to get those RPI points and get in there. So I do think um, it was just so much simpler. Back in the day when a district champ went, back in the day when the district champ and district runner-up went, you knew that who was going. You didn't need a calculator to to figure out who was going and getting in there. You just knew 
who was going in. But as college football and uh, college basketball and all that stuff have used RPI, that's kind of been the metric for, for the high school guys. I'm just in all sports. I am a proponent of not deciding who can play for a championship based on who you think will win. Let them earn their way into it. Uh, if, if for me, it's that way in college basketball. I know that there are at-large bids, but once you start getting down to teams, you know, at-large teams number 29, 30, 31, they don't necessarily have a right to play for a national championship. They get the benefit of having that shot, mm-hmm. and, it, you know, if they can take advantage of it, take it, then they still have to win those games. Same thing, you know, again, I go back to the NFL. Uh, you go back to Major League Baseball. You earn it based on your record and how you perform. Are there times when some team – you know, is in a bad spot because they're in a division or a conference with somebody else who's very, very strong and you might not get in, maybe. But um, w- just give these kids a chance to earn their way in. Then let the chips fall where they may in terms of playing for the championship. Yeah, and I do like the the earning your way in. I But, again, I'm a proponent of playing a tough schedule, and you know, I think we we saw how that did not really – work in the past for a team like a St. Augustine or um, Clay to a certain extent you play a tougher schedule and almost penalized by your district if you don't win that one game but again that's how I, I like to see tough games I like to see good opponents and I think the playoff system how it was how it's been set up has given us a chance to see better matchups um, but again I think uh, when you're going down to that granular, granular metric you want to see um, the best teams get in the playoffs you want to have equal opportunity or you compete against teams that are similar to you um you know coach sean mcintyre creekside said this week he uh, the coaches he's talked to he wants or they want an apples to apples comparison not an apples to orange or apples to bananas they want a fair shake and they think that's what this system will do in the long run so um isn't that max prep system subjective though it's it's, more subjective than the rpi just because the rpi wasn't the right thing doesn't mean that there can't be something less subjective put in there that's true and i think the the least subjective thing was district champ get in and district runner up i mean then then you're you're pretty much you know exactly you're control your own destiny uh, if you tie have a tiebreaker kansas tiebreaker you play that i mean it's on the field it's not done with metric points rating points anything like that the max prep system has been used in uh, the other major team sports still a little bit confusing there too and i think that's that's what uh, makes me a little hesitant on it you just don't know week to week who's doing what and uh, what it's based on that's truly a strength of schedule uh, thing there you're not doing rpi and having to get off the calculator there it's it's a little bit um a little bit easier to understand from this your strength of schedule. You're not taking uh, your opponent's opponent's direct. I mean, it, it's a little bit more um, easier to understand, but still still confusing. And if you want to use that as a seeding method to determine this district runner-up versus that district runner-up, you know, or whether you want you, – because a record is not the same between one high school team and another based yeah, on their, their opposition. So if you want to use something like that to determine if this is a four-seed or a five-seed, fine. But uh, to me, again, um, let them earn their way in, and then you know, you slot them how you need, feel like you need to slot them, and let them go at it after that. What's the, what's the perfect answer for this? Do you have a way to look at that? And if you were in charge, if you're running the FHA and said, "Hey, this is what we're going to do," how would you set that playoff field? Again, given the parameters um, of how many playoff teams you're going to allow in, um, I would certainly say put everybody back in a district. Let the you know the district champ is obviously in mm-hmm. right. Everybody would would acknowledge that. I think every district runner up should be in. Then, if there are more spots to fill from other at large teams, if if that comes down to something that can be more 
objective than subjective, and I don't know the answer to that. I, you know, let, let's find that. Let's find that way to, to determine that. Um, and and it, it does have to be tweaked year to year because when you talk, football coaches are always looking for the angle, mm-hmm. right? Whether they're looking for the matchup that benefits them or they're looking for, you know, scheduling a team that uh, early in the year that they know isn't going to have their full firepower till late in the year, and then and then that'll help their their uh, strength of schedule or the opponent's strength of schedule. What they will find ways to, to work that system. I mean, that's that's in that's part of the the, the makeup of, of of any coach in any sp- you know, team sport that I've ever covered. Try to find the angles that'll help you win. Find that competitive edge. So you're never going to find a system that has a human subjectivity to it or even objectivity to it that the coaches aren't going to try to find the angle on. So fine. Just make sure you get the di- you put everybody back in the district. Make sure the district champs and the district runner-ups are in. And then if you're going to put a third a team from a district in, let's find a better way to do it. Yeah, and back uh, in the early 2000s, there was a similar situation to that where they allowed the district champ in, they allowed the district runner-up in, and they had at-large berths or wild-card berths, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but they had those. They filled the uh, additional spots in each region via this – at large berth, and they did that at the time based on records of best teams in the region. I think it would have to be done something like that now, but I don't think you could use just say that record or, because you know, records are not created. Listen, equal. or just leave out third place in district. I mean, if you finish third in your district, you might be a pretty good team, but you know the rules going in. Finish first or second, you get in. Now, again, you're taking away playoff spots and, again, chances for teams to prove it on the field. Uh, after they haven't proven it on the field or haven't proven it enough, um, and again with the smaller with a smaller classification, you might only have five teams in a district. And if you're a third place team in that district, you might be a 500 team. And does that really, you know, demand a spot in the playoffs? No, yeah, probably I, not. But if you're in a, you know, a seven team district or something somewhere, and you're the third place team, you know, in 8A in a district, you're probably a pretty darn good team. Yeah, and I think that's um, when you run into the districts and regions and whatnot. I think years ago, when you would have a one-win team from a uh, a two-team district mm-hmm. reach the playoffs, all you do is win one game in your district and your district champ or district runner-up, whatever the case may be. District champ goes in, district runner-up goes in, and you know you're a one-in-nine team. Uh, that happened to Clay several years ago. They uh, Gainesville East Side team was one in nine and made the playoffs as a district runner-up and played Clay. Um, again, situations like that should not happen. And I think when you would look at those at-large berths or wild-card berths from a region perspective, uh, that would eliminate some of those smaller district teams, you know, smaller districts from getting that automatic qualifier in there. So I think there's got to be a, a way to bridge that gap without getting too many metrics and whatnot involved and in, in taking that RPI to the equation. Yeah, ultimately you want to give the kids who have earned the right the opportunity to continue to play. And those who may or may not have earned the right, you want them to be fairly judged as to whether they did or did not. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation, and this is not going away. Probably going to amp up uh, over these next uh, next five weeks as we prepare for that vote. It's going to be interesting, and I think the more uh, the more the word gets out, I know it's picked up on social media and stuff, but I think the more that coaches uh, learn about this, I've texted a few coaches who did not have really much of anything to say on it because they did not know about uh, the, the depths and stuff of this new bill. So I think the more people that learn about this, parents, players, coaches, um, administrators, I do think this is going to uh, pick up almost like we did a couple years ago when we were going through the pandemic and all the intensity and interest were on those FHA board meetings. I think this has a potential to be that.
Yeah, as long as I don't have to sit through uh, six-hour Zoom calls to figure out what's really going on. I'll let you do that. (laughs) That is going to wrap us up for another edition of Varsity. Thanks to Cole Pepper for joining us again this week. You can subscribe to our Varsity newsletter online as well. We will come back to you next week with some more uh, thoughts on this subject and some stuff from around the area. News, notes, and headliners. Thanks for listening.